This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight I'd like to continue the exploration of the Buddha's first discourse, turning, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma, or turning the wheel of Dharma. And if you remember, he began this teaching with outlining the middle way. That is, avoiding the extremes of sense indulgence on the one hand, or self-mortification on the other. And he then outlined the great framework of understanding suffering and its end in his teachings of the Four Noble Truths, those truths that truly ennoble our lives. The first of them is coming to fully understand the truth of dukkha. I talked about this at some length last week. This evening we'll explore the second noble truth, that is the origin or the cause of dukkha. What are the conditions for its arising? Remembering that while dukkha is often translated as suffering, in a more comprehensive and more generally applicable way, it means that which is unsatisfying or unreliable or stressful. This is from the Buddha's words of his first discourse. He said, Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. So it's striking to me that in the very long list of the different unwholesome factors of mind, that the Buddha singles out this one particular factor, this one particular energy, as being the primary condition 
for dukkha to arise. And he said, bhikkhus, I do not envision even one other fetter, <clears throat> fettered by which beings go wandering and tries transmigrating for a long time, like the fetter of craving. So it's this powerful force in the mind, this force of craving, that keeps the whole wheel of samsara, the whole wheel of conditioned existence rolling on. So what is this force in the mind? What is craving? And how do we experience it in our practice and in our lives? Craving is the translation of the Pali word tanha, which means thirst, or sometimes it's translated as the fever of unsatisfied longing. You know, and these translations of the word tanha, thirst, or fever of unsatisfied longing, it gives us a sense of its intensely compelling nature. This is not just a superficial force in our minds. It's a primal energy that seems to come from deep within our being. And it's precisely this fever of unsatisfied longing which is just the opposite of peace. Now in English, we often use the words desire and craving synonymously. But in a Dharma context, this can be confusing. Because in English, the word desire has a range of meanings. Sometimes it is the thirst for craving associated with greed. But sometimes we use the word desire to simply mean the motivation to do something. I have the desire to do something, the desire to accomplish something. And this can be either skillful or unskillful, depending on the motivation associated with it. But in the talk tonight, keep in mind that I am using desire and craving synonymously. So when I use desire, I'm using it to mean in particular the desire associated with greed, associated with grasping, but remembering that desire can also mean other things. Just to remind you again, I, I said this in the very first talk of, on this first discourse of the Buddha, but it inspires me to think, you know, the Buddha sat under the tree, he got enlightened after all these years of arduous practice. He spent quite a few weeks just contemplating the various truths that he had discovered. Then he goes off to what's now called Sarnath to teach the first five ascetics. And these are the very first teachings he's given. You know, and he just lays out with such precision and such clarity the whole framework of the next 45 years of his teaching in just these few lines. You know, he explains the truth of dukkha, and here in the cause of dukkha, he spoke of three domains of craving. He just laid it out so clearly. If we want to understand craving, we can look at these three arenas of our lives. 
you said, it's craving for sense pleasures, craving for renewed existence or becoming, and craving for non-existence or annihilation. So the first of these, and the most obvious, is the familiar desire for pleasures of the senses. You know, these are the pleasant sights and sounds, pleasing smells and tastes, the pleasant sensations in the body. And we can also include in this the agreeable, pleasant states of mind. You know, when we consider the mind as simply the sixth sense. Now, when we think of this, you know, the realm of sense pleasures, there's pleasant sights and sounds and smells, all this is just our usual engagement with life. This is, this is our ordinary life, wanting and enjoying what is pleasurable and avoiding as best we can what is disagreeable. So it doesn't seem particularly striking, isn't this just how we would want to live. But here the Bodhisattva in his quest for Buddhahood <clears throat> began a very revealing analysis of his own and our situation. And what's interesting to me is that he did not condemn sense pleasures as being sinful, but rather with his kind of scientific observation and investigation of his experience, it led him to ask some very basic questions as a way of understanding, well, what is this life situation about? So the first question he asked was, what is the gratification in the world? What is the gratification? Now, as a young prince, he himself had thoroughly enjoyed all the various strands of sense pleasures. It was from the time of his birth till the time he left home. He was fully immersed in this world of pleasurable activities. They weren't foreign to him. And then, as it's recounted in the suttas and the discourses, this thought came to the bodhisattva as he was beginning to investigate the nature of his experience. He said, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. So he's acknowledging, yes, there is gratification, there is joy, there is pleasure. If there were no pleasure and joy in the world, beings would not become enamored of it. So it's precisely because there are these sense pleasures, precisely because this is the gratification that we feel in the world, that we desire and crave these pleasures. So all of this makes sense. It seems, it seems obvious. But rather than simply listen to the Buddha's words about all this, it's helpful if we take it from the world of, you know, interesting ideas or concepts and really follow the lead of the Buddha in asking ourselves this very same question. What is the gratification we find in our lives? What 
experiences, what sense experiences, including the mind, are we enamored by? If we want to understand the teachings and integrate them on an experiential level, we have to apply all of the Buddha's teachings, apply them directly to our own lives. That's the only way we can really come to understand them. So what are the experiences that we are enamored by? What's the nature of the craving that comes from them? So on one extreme, there might be obsessive cravings you know, that consume our lives. And we're familiar with a wide range of addictive desires. You know, there could be addictive desires for food, for sex, for alcohol, for drugs, for success, for power, for wealth, for possessions, for fame, for comfort, even for love. People can become addicted and crave that feeling. And much of the world's great literature is just about these very themes of people's lives obsessed by particular desires. Or we may have the same desires, but not necessarily on an obsessive level. You know, for all of those different things, but still as the driving force behind many of our actions. So it's worth examining carefully the motivating forces in our lives, becoming conscious of what it is in the course of a day, becoming conscious of what it is that we desire, and the gratification that motivates us to act. So we're really seeing it. So they're the obsessive desires that can consume a life. There are these same desires, but on perhaps a less obsessive level. But we can also see craving on a more momentary level. You know, maybe it's just a passing thought of wanting. And there's a story about this which I heard secondhand, so I can't vouch for its accuracy, but it illustrates the point so beautifully. Somebody told me of a talk that the Dalai Lama had given in L.A. So they were recounting the Dalai Lama's talk to me. And they said that in this talk, the Dalai Lama had spoken of the ride between his hotel and the place where the teachings were being given. And every day they drove on the same road. And it happened to be on a road where there were a lot of stores with the latest technological gadgets. And the Dalai Lama is very interested kind of in the technology and science. And so he saw, you know, I passed by all these stores with all these technological gizmos. And according to my friend who told me the story, the Dalai Lama said at the end of the week that he passed by every day, and by the end of the week, he found himself wanting things even though he didn't know what they were. And I thought, that's us. You know, where the mind just gets captivated by something, you know, some possible interest, 
sometimes even when we don't know what they are. It's interesting to see and to watch and to observe the deep-rooted persistence of even small, innocuous desires. You know, desires for sense pleasures. And this, I've seen this so often on my retreats. I'll have a thought, oh, a cup of tea would be nice. And I'll just notice the thought, and it'll come and go. And 20 seconds later, the thought is there again. Oh, a cup of tea. I watch it. I'm, I'm very mindful. I see that it's just a thought. It comes and goes. 40 seconds later, <laughs> four, four, five, six, seven times the thought may come. Eighth time I get the cup of tea. It's just waiting. It's just waiting for that one moment when we're a little less attentive. And the so this force of craving, whether it's a really big one or just a very little one, it's a very powerful, habituated force in the mind. But these different patterns of craving, of desire, of wanting, are so familiar to us. They just seem to be the ordinary fabric of our lives. They don't seem particularly problematic. They don't really cause us to examine or investigate them very carefully. They just seem completely ordinary. There's so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that they often remain invisible. We're not even aware that they're arising so frequently until we bring the power of a very careful, mindful awareness to them. So the retreat environment is a very conducive place for seeing and feeling directly the gratification that comes from different sense pleasures. Because this is what the Buddha saw. He, he saw the realm of sense pleasures. He understood the gratification of them. So we need to see that clearly. During the day, it would be interesting and instructive for you to notice what does the mind become enamored of? Yeah, and it may be very small things. And then the craving that often follows. So I was thinking about this, I was just reflecting on my own experience being on retreat here at the Forest Refuge, and I was thinking back, well, what, where did my mind really, you know, feel a gratification of a sense pleasure? And one of the places that I remember, just each time, you know when you're taking a shower, and the shower room's a little on the cool side, and then you get into the nice hot shower, and just that feel, ah, feels so good. And then the temptation just to luxuriate, you know, in the warmth and the heat. It's very pleasant. It's very agreeable. You know, and then the mind wants to prolong it. Or that first hit of delicious taste at lunch. You know, we're waiting and finally lunch arrives. And then, you know, the food here is so good. And just, 
first hit of pleasure. Well, the one that I really enjoyed, maybe most of all, after a hard day of practice, just sitting and walking and sitting and walking and really putting forth a good effort, you know that moment when you finally get into bed and you just, ah, you know, your head's on the pillow and you're on the nice, comfortable mattress and it, ah, it feels so good. So these are kind of little sense pleasures where we can understand the gratification. Yes, there is a gratification. It brings us a certain pleasure. So we want to notice that, not just skip over them. It can also be this gratification can also come in the enjoyment of pleasant fantasies and our desire for them to continue. At times, they might be enticing sexual fantasies or food desires or fantasies about work. Are you familiar with the yogi phenomena of Vipassana brilliance? You know, where we're sitting, meditating, and we just get all these brilliant ideas about a work or project or the book we're going to write or something. And all of a sudden, we're just caught up in the brilliance of our minds and what we're going to do. Or perhaps the more familiar phenomena of the Vipassana romance, you know, where whole relationships are played out in the mind. And often, we haven't even met the person. And yet, we're enamored of the pleasure of the fantasy. And we get caught up in it. So at some point of looking at all these various ways of gratification of the sense pleasures, at some point of investigation and reflection, we might resonate with the Buddha's words when he said, whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. So he just fully explored that realm of being gratified by the senses. Or are we still holding out some hope for some new and unexpected gratification? What are we hoping for? It's going to be a pleasant sight or a pleasant sound or smell or taste or sensation or mind object. Well, the Bodhisattva did not stop with this acknowledgement, investigation, realization of what constitutes the gratification in the world. But that was the first step. He really explored it. But then he asked the next probing question. Oh, bhikkhus, I set out seeking the drawbacks in the world. So first he sees the gratification. Then he explores, well, what's the drawbacks? Now, drawback is one translation of the Pali word Adinava. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. But this word, this Pali word, can also be understood as defects, disadvantages, dangers. Okay, what are the drawbacks, the defects, the disadvantages, the dangers? Colloquially, we might call it the downside of things. Now, what's the downside of these gratifications? So the 
Buddha went on, and whatever drawbacks or dangers there are in the world that I have found, that the world is impermanent, bound up with dukkha, subject to change. So he's really seeing very clearly, yes, there is the gratification, but these are the drawbacks. They're impermanent. They're dukkha. They're they're unreliable. They're subject to change. And so what the Bodhisattva is here calling the drawbacks of the world is precisely the truth of dukkha that we talked about last week. But how many of us in our lives when times are good, when we're happy in the enjoyment and gratification of the various joys and pleasures of our lives or of our meditation practice, how many of us in those times when things are agreeable and joyous and we're happy in the gratification, how often do we have enough prescience or foresight to stop and consider well, what are the drawbacks here? What's the downside of this experience? Do we do that? Do we investigate at those times or not? Are we simply lost in the enjoyment and the craving and the desire for more? So, this is also from the suttas. People, the Buddha said, who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with the fever of sensual pleasures, who still indulge in sensual pleasures, the more they indulge in these pleasures, the more their craving for sensual pleasures increases, and the more they are burned by the fever of sensual pleasures yet they find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in dependence on the five chords of sensual pleasure. Is that us or not? We're not free from desire for them. We are sometimes devoured by them. We are burning to some degree in the fever of them. And the more the desire increases, And yet, we still find a measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in them. So how can we understand this? We often don't feel the burning in the fever of this craving. Usually we're more enamored of the gratification. We see that, we're enamored by it, we enjoy it. And we don't necessarily consider in those moments what the downside might be. So I thought to talk a little bit about how we can experience and explore the drawbacks, just so it comes more into our consciousness. So the first big drawback or defect or downside of sense pleasures as a vehicle for peace is that in the end, they don't deliver on their promise of happiness. We believe that they'll make us happy because of the pleasant feelings that arise. 
and they do bring some happiness. So it's true that we do experience an enjoyment, a pleasure, a kind of happiness from them. The problem is that these pleasant feelings, as we all know, are very impermanent. Sometimes momentarily so. The pleasant feelings are there, but they change continually. They just arise and pass away, and then we go after another and another. And before we know it, our lives are at an end. Now, how many people live their lives in pursuit of the happiness that comes from the pleasure of the senses, mind included? It's most people. This is the realm. This is the ordinary mundane realm that most people live in. And before we know it, we're at the end of our lives, not having been fulfilled because they are incapable of bringing fulfillment, precisely because each one is not lasting. You know, it's like trying to quench our thirst by drinking salt water. It just makes us more thirsty. I found it very illuminating when I examine this in my own experience in life to see when and how occasional desires strengthen into deeper habit patterns of wanting. Because the force of habit is so strong. You know, we have a habit and we, whatever it is, and it could be just a very small thing or a big thing, we just enjoy it once, and oh, that was nice. And then again, oh, yeah, that was really nice. And then before we know it, whatever it is, oh, this becomes a daily occurrence. And after a while, we've incorporated another whole arena of desire and craving into our lives, and we don't even realize it, because it's just become a habitual activity. We're just, we have normalized it you know, through habit. So I found it very interesting to watch that process. Just, oh, how does that occasional gratification, if I'm not really being mindful, before I know it, it just becomes part of how I'm living. So the question for us to consider and to reflect on deeply, given the power of craving in the mind, the deep-seated power of it, is to consider how many of these sense pleasures have we already enjoyed. Countless. In the course of our lives, we've all had countless pleasant experiences. And yet, have they brought us to a sense of completion, to a sense of fulfillment? You know, we wake up in the morning just ready to continue our quest for more pleasant feeling. So the question for us is how much of our lives and energy do we want to invest in this endless pursuit? It is not going to come to an end. Now, although we're 
all lay people living in the world and engaged in the world of sense pleasure. So this is, this is our ordinary lives. Still, for all of us, I think, some very deep part of us knows, and we've seen to some extent, the downside and the drawbacks of them, that they are not the way to peace. And it's why we're all here. You know, and so already we, we have all cultivated quite a deep wisdom about this and don't undervalue that understanding. We all have had the experience that Dharma practice in so many different ways opens us to the possibility of a much greater happiness than the happiness of sense pleasures. You know, and that's really the community of Sangha, of people who understand this. So the first drawback of relying on gratification for sense pleasures, for our happiness, is that it doesn't finally accomplish our aims. It doesn't deliver on its promise. The second danger of relying on this gratification is that when the craving becomes a strong and powerful force in the, in the mind, it can lead to many unwholesome actions, creating unskillful karma, which in turn leads and brings us more suffering. The Buddha talked of nine things, nine activities that are rooted in craving. I'll just mention a few of them. It's the activity of pursuit, of acquisition, of desire and lust, of selfish tenacity, possessiveness, avarice, concern for protection, protecting what we have, quarrels, strife, and dissension, offensive talk, slanders, and lies. All of those things are rooted in this habit energy of craving in the mind. And we can see this play out both on a national or global level and also on a personal level of how craving leads directly to suffering. You know, what's striking about the recent financial meltdown in this country and in other parts of the world as well, where millions of people have lost their jobs, have lost their life savings, have lost their homes. So these are very real things in people's lives. What's striking is that driven by one desire or another, people and institutions assume these huge amounts of unmanageable debt, grasping at things beyond the means to pay for them, until eventually just the whole edifice collapsed with all the attendant suffering. So what was all of that rooted in? It was all rooted in craving. It was all rooted in greed. So this second noble truth, the origin of dukkha, 
this is not a hypothetical proposition. I mean, this is not just kind of the Buddha creating a nice philosophy. That craving is the origin of suffering plays out so often in society at large, and it plays out in our own lives. So one drawback of craving for gratification of sense pleasures is that it doesn't deliver on its promise. A second danger is that it leads to so many unwholesome actions which bring about suffering. We can also experience a third disadvantage or downside of craving right in the immediacy of our own meditation practice. Have you noticed any times of wanting or expectation in your meditation? You know, wanting some new, imagined, pleasurable experience to be happening. Or a present pleasant one to remain. Or an old one, one that we remember having, we want it to return. This is a teaching from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters. He said, if we have interesting experiences, either during or after meditation, we should avoid making anything special of them. To spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. These experiences are simply signs of practice and should be regarded as transient events. We should not attempt to re-experience them because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique, and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. I mean, we can hear that 10,000 times. And yet in our practice, how often are we looking for the, the special experience, the pleasant experience? The danger here is that this expectation, you know, the wanting, itself brings agitation, it brings suffering. What makes this particular danger so seductive is that it often comes disguised as dharma aspiration. It seems like something good. You know, we confuse expectation with our aspirations for our practice. But these are really two very different mind states, and it would be helpful to distinguish them clearly in your own mind. Aspiration can inspire us. We can have an aspiration for awakening, for Buddhahood, for enlightenment, to be of service to all beings. We can have the most noble aspirations. That's very different than an expectation that any particular thing should be happening right now in our practice. Expectation only leads to cycles of hope and fear. Hope 
that what we want will happen, fear that it won't happen. And so we just get caught on that seesaw. This is not an insignificant pattern. There's a very interesting dialogue in the suttas about this. And it's a very good teaching. So I'd just like to read. It's a dialogue. So on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Asaji was dwelling in a potter's shed, sick, afflicted, gravely ill. Then the Blessed One dressed and taking bowl and robe approached the Venerable Asaji and said, I hope you are bearing up. I hope you are getting better. I hope that your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. Venerable Sir, I am not bearing up. I am not getting better. Strong, painful feelings are increasing in me, not subsiding. I hope, then, Asaji, that you are not troubled by remorse and regret. Indeed, Venerable Sir, I have quite a lot of remorse and regret. The Buddha said, I hope, Asaji, that you have nothing for which to reproach yourself in regard to virtue. I have nothing, Venerable Sir, for which to reproach myself in regard to virtue. Then if you have nothing for which to reproach yourself in regard to virtue, Asaji, why are you troubled by remorse and regret? Okay, now we get to the heart of it. Formerly, Venerable Sir, when I was ill, I kept on tranquilizing the bodily formations, but now I do not obtain concentration. As I do not obtain concentration now, it occurs to me, let me not fall away from the path. Okay, he's old, he's sick, things are getting worse. He can no longer attain concentration. So he feels remorse and regret. And then the Buddha says, and this is really helpful to remember, it is only those ascetics and Brahmins, Asaji, who regard concentration as the essence and identify concentration with the path, failing to obtain concentration might think, let us not fall away. When we make any particular experience, when we hold the experience to be the essence of the path, then when it falls away, we might have remorse and regret. But the essence of the path, the essence of freedom, is not in any particular experience. So the next time you feel frustrated in your practice, the next time you feel some agitation, look to see if there is some expectation which is operative. Do you have some idea of what you want to be happening? as opposed to being with what actually is happening. So look, when there's suffering, when there's agitation, look to see if there's expectation, and then examine, see directly the craving that's behind it. Here, struggle, the feeling of struggle in our meditation and in our lives 
can become, instead of being a problem, can become a very useful feedback. Because struggle, the feeling of struggle, always signifies that something is arising in our experience, in our lives, that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So non-acceptance is really just another word for wanting. We don't accept this and we want that. When we have the courage to see the world and our life experiences clearly, we can recognize both the gratification that is there. And the Buddha acknowledged this. There is a gratification. There is a kind of joy and pleasure that we get from agreeable sense experiences, including pleasant meditative experiences. But at the same time that we see and acknowledge the gratification that we also see and investigate and explore, well, what are the drawbacks here? What are the dangers? What's the downside of this? So then we go beyond the superficial or the conventional level of understanding our lives, of understanding our own habitual patterns. And so when we look deeper and enlarge the scope of our vision, it leads to a wiser relationship in re- wiser relationship with everything that's arising. Okay, so we've talked a lot about desire or craving for sense pleasures. So this is going to be a speed course through the other two. The second kind of craving the Buddha spoke about, in a way, goes even deeper than the craving for sense pleasures. And that's called craving for renewed existence or craving for becoming. And it's the basic urge or desire to be. It's the desire for continued existence, particularly in pleasant realms or circumstances. And we know this life force, it's just so powerful, this desire to continue existence. We can see it in very mundane ways, this desire for becoming, playing itself out um, in this very life. This, this particular kind of craving is often mentioned with respect to craving for renewed next life, you know, and it keeps the whole wheel of samsara going. But we can see it operative in this very life. We can see it in the planning mind, where we're just imagining ourselves in some future situation. could be in a work situation, you know, where we're planning ahead, or an idea for a vacation. Or it could just be imagining. I, I remember once I was, I was teaching in Boulder. I was sitting in my apartment, and I had a thought in an image of a pizza. And it was amazing. That thought and image lifted me up out of my chair, out the door, down the stairs, down the road to the pizza shop, got the pizza, waited, brought it home, opened the box, 
ate it while it was still too hot, burned my mouth. <laughs> but it was, just, it was just a desire, a craving for becoming. You know, I had this idea of what I wanted in the future. And then I set this whole chain of actions and thoughts to fulfill it. And it could be in the moment like that. It could be something we think of that we want to do weeks ahead or months ahead or years ahead. And we set in chain this whole process of becoming. Notice how often we get lost in the mind actions of a future self. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll go here, I'll go there. So much of our lives and our mind activity is that kind of desire for becoming. So the Buddha had a very powerful teaching about this. And it inspires, the, the simplicity of it inspires me to consider what would it be like to live like this. So he said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, see each arising state not craving for past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up in desire or craving. What could be simpler? Just dropping into the moment, aware of what's arising. Once I was on retreat here and I was doing some walking meditation, I was reflecting on all this and I said, yeah, the Buddha said, awakening is the end of craving. So I said, okay. Joseph, just stop it. Stop desiring. I think it's so simple. Just don't desire. And about 20 seconds later, the next desire came. It's just, it's so strong. And yet, the practice is so simple. We just have to keep doing it. Keep not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Do you feel the beauty of that? I just, I... I get so uplifted by that thought, you know, of living that simply in the present. On a more momentary level, we can see this craving for, for becoming very clearly in our meditation practice itself. Just, you know, as we're with the unfolding process, even if we don't have, you know, the craving, some big expectation for some great, wonderful experience, how often in our meditation do we have the sense of just leaning forward into the next moment, as if somehow the next step or the next breath or the next sensation or the next thought will resolve everything. It's like we don't quite trust that it's all here now. So we're here, we're mindful, but just that leaning into the next one and leaning into the next one. And so we're always toppling forward. And that's just another kind of craving for becoming. I call this the in order to mind. You know, we're, we're with one experience in order for something else to happen. Now, how often... Are we with unpleasant sensations and we're trying to be mindful of them and we're feeling them and observing them and watching them 
in order for them to release? Or how often are we with some emotion, you know, that may be coming up quite strongly or powerfully or mildly, and we're watching it or feeling it and opening to it in order to explore it more deeply, in order for it to cathart or something. We have some idea of how we would like to see it unfold. And that's just craving for becoming. It's just leaning into the next moments. Here we're not seeing each of these experiences simply as insubstantial empty phenomena arising and passing in the moment. So that's our practice. It's to remember to drop back. We forget that liberation is not about becoming or getting anything. It's not about holding on. It's not about craving or clinging. The whole practice of freedom, the practice of liberation, is the practice of not clinging, of not holding on, of letting go, of letting things be. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, he, he just captured this so beautifully in his little teaching. He said, try to be less, not more. You know, we're always trying to gain something. And it's really just the opposite. Try to be less. Try to let go. So the first kind of craving is for sense pleasures. The second kind of craving is the craving for becoming the third kind of craving, which the Buddha mentioned, is the desire for non-existence. You know, where the senses, our experience is so bad, if only I weren't here. Years ago, uh, some friends and I were kind of going through parallel experiences in our practice, and it was a real dukkha period. You know, it just, it was all, it was hard, and a struggle, and it was all difficult. So we formed what we called the dukkha club. You know, and we had a we had a favorite poet. I think I think Central American or Spanish. I'm not sure his name is Dario, and he had one line from one of his poems was the motto of the Duca Club. It, this line said, "Oh, to be a stone with no feeling at all," <laughs> and that kind of expressed our highest aspiration. The problem is that this kind of craving to just be out of it is no less than the other two sustained by and feeds the sense of self. It's a self that doesn't want to be here. And so it's just reinforcing in that negative way the whole ego structure of self. And this is precisely the wrong view, the wrong view of self, that keeps the whole wheel of conditioned existence going. You know, there's a self to gratify, a self to clone in the future, a self to get rid of. Are you familiar with the writer Wei Wu Wei? He was a, I think, British or Irish, I forget. He lived in Hong Kong for many years and had, had some kind of powerful opening because his writings are very uh, 
to the point in terms of freeing the mind. And he, he wrote a lot of little aphorisms. So this is one of them. With regard to the three kinds of craving and how they reinforce the sense of self. He called this the goose. Destroy the ego. Hound it. Beat it. Snub it. Tell it where it gets off. Great fun, no doubt. But where is it? Must you not find it first? Isn't there a word about catching your goose before you cook it? The great difficulty here is that there isn't one. And so it's that insight, the deepening realization of that, of the selfless nature of all phenomena that's arising that begins to free us from these three kinds of craving. Because all of them are fed by this notion of a self. It's a self we want to gratify, a self we want to replicate in the future, a self we want to get rid of. So this really points to where freedom lies. So the great discovery in our practice is that on one level, birth and death, you know, existence, non-existence, self and other, become the great defining themes of our lives. And on another level, on a deeper level, we see that all of it is just a dance of insubstantial appearances. It's what the Buddha called the magic show of consciousness. In the early morning of the Buddha's enlightenment, when his understanding of these Four Noble Truths was complete, it said that some of the words that came to his mind, there was a whole verse, the famous house builder quote, but the last lines of those verses that came to his mind, this is just after his great awakening, he said, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So we talked a fair amount about the nature of craving tonight. Next week we'll explore the third noble truth, which is the realization of the end of craving. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour.